Welcome to Fine Rambles, number 91. It's Super Bowl Sunday, and so you're going to have 80,000 people packed into a stadium in Miami, while at the same time, on the other side of the planet in Xiaomen, I'm probably mispronouncing that, they're launching a lottery system for mask purchases, and at the same time, you now have a number of cities, including Wuhan at the epicenter, but as far away on the East Coast as Wenzhou that are quarantined, that are locked down, where there is no one on the street, where it looks like an abandoned city, even though they are cities of 6 million, 9 million, 11 million people. So yes, we're going to be talking about coronavirus. Ever since the coronavirus got started, the Chinese Communist Party has denied the problem. They have covered up the problem. They have arrested people who tried to draw attention to the problem. And by doing this, they made the problem worse. It took them until... December 31st, to tell the World Health Organization that there was a problem. And so a month ago, the World Health Organization already knew that this virus existed, and they already knew it was transmissible human to human. And, you know, at least for the first few weeks, at least for December, I'm pretty unwilling to throw stones It's a time of chaos. You don't really know what's going on. You don't really know the danger. But by December 31st, they knew, and the World Health Organization knew. And that's a month ago. And, you know, did you guys see the miniseries on HBO, Chernobyl? For me, that was enormously telling. Because the response of the CCP reminds me of the response of the Soviets to Chernobyl. Deny the problem happened, bury it, kill the messenger, deny, deny, deny. Refuse foreign help. Have no transparency. Have considerations of politics and ego trump any sort of humanitarian response, where They cared more about the reputation of the Soviet Union than about saving the lives of their citizens. But here's the really scary part, because coronavirus is way, way more dangerous than Chernobyl. Chernobyl was bad, but it was never going to be a global disaster. And that is not the case with coronavirus. In this kind of situation, where you have a global system that is tightly interconnected through globalism, through trade, through travel, it becomes very difficult to contain a highly contagious, highly fatal disease if you allow those connections to remain. And therefore, the path of wisdom, the path of humility, is to panic early. Again, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but the worst thing you can do in a case like this 
is just assume it's all going to blow over because that enables the tight connections to persist. Under a threat like this, you want to break those links as quickly as possible. You want to, quote, overreact and therefore prevent the spread of the disease. Panicking early prevents the problem. The CCP has done the exact opposite of this. Do you guys remember a couple years ago when there was Ebola in West Africa? And the United States literally took someone with a disease that has a fatality rate of over 50%, and they brought them back to the United States. And at the time, I was tearing out (laughs) what little hair I had and saying, this is the stupidest thing in the world. You are bringing an unknown problem into the middle of our country. And they reassured us that, oh, there's no way this could possibly escape. That, of course, as anyone who has seen a good <laughs> a good zombie movie or a good pandemic movie knows, is bullshit. There are things you can't control. And if the thing you can't control has the potential to kill everyone, you have to err on the side of caution. You have to err on the side of overreacting. You have to err on the side of the precautionary principle, which says it's better to pay a little price now under high degrees of uncertainty than risk the black swan event, which could be 200 million people dying. Now, is that likely? No. But, (laughs) you know, lots of things are unlikely but you have to prepare for them anyways. That's why we have insurance. I mean, take a really simple example. Five out of six people think playing Russian roulette is harmless. And so you're like, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't have played Russian roulette, but it all worked out in the end. Well, yeah, because you were lucky. So this is where we are. We have a globalist economy that is so tightly linked that it is very easy for a pandemic to spread out of control. We have corrupt governments and corrupt institutions who hide and deny the problem based on political expediency. (laughs) And that's a really dangerous combination. And then you say, well, Matt, Didn't the WHO, the World Health Organization, do a good job? Didn't they announce last week that this is a public health emergency? But this was a month after they knew. So it took them a month, and then they made a statement that had nothing behind it. They said, quote, There is no reason for measures that unnecessarily interfere with international travel and trade. Stopping international travel should have been literally the only thing they talked about. That is the only thing that they should have been focusing on doing. The WHO failed. They failed to do what they were supposed to do. And this, I feel, is a theme I keep coming back to, that institutions evolve and corrupt themselves in a way that they end up doing exactly the opposite of their mandate. And here, the corruption of the World Health Organization is pretty simple to understand. The current director general is a guy named 
Tedros Adhanom. Again, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. And he is from Ethiopia. And Ethiopia today is basically a colony of China. It's part of China's neocolonialism under the term Belt and Road Initiative. Almost all of the foreign direct investment that Ethiopia gets today, tens of billions of dollars, comes from China. And that investment is necessary to keep the ruling people in power. And so they do what China tells them. And China is in cover-your-ass mode. They're in save-face mode. And so when China tries to downplay the severity of this crisis, the WHO follows the orders of the Chinese Communist Party. Period. And I get it. I get that the WHO has no real power. I get that they just provide advice. But they have the perception of authority. And when you claim authority, you have to act in a manner that follows the precautionary principle and is not susceptible to corruption. Otherwise, why do you exist? Just shut down the World Health Organization if all they're going to do is lie and be corrupt and give advice that threatens the lives of millions of people around the world. A week before they made the statement, they made another statement. And in that statement, they said everything was fine. There was no crisis. There was no public health emergency. Everyone should just go about their business. And in the week they took to make this announcement, the cases doubled. Again, I really think this is an important date. January 30th, this is when the WHO finally declares a public health emergency, but says international trade and travel should continue just as before. That's the 30th. One full week before, not only did they say there was no problem, but that was the day, the 23rd, that Wuhan was quarantined by the Chinese Communist Party. This is essentially like locking down Chicago, a city of 11 million people. The gates just went down. But here's the rub, okay? This timing for the coronavirus was maybe the worst possible timing because it happened over the Lunar New Year. And again, I don't really understand this stuff as well as I should. So, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt. But what I understand, at least, is that for Lunar New Year, everyone goes home to their family. And that basically means they leave the mass industrialized modern cities on the East Coast and they go back to their village. They go back to the heartland. They go back to places like Wuhan, and they have these large, elaborate family gatherings. And one of these gatherings was sponsored and prepared by the city of Wuhan well after they knew about the virus, well after they knew that it could be transmitted human to human. And at this banquet, 40,000 families gathered together and ate together. 40,000 families. So this banquet was allowed to go on despite everything they knew. And then the gates went down in Wuhan. But by then, 5 million people had already left Wuhan. So imagine you're the virus and you want to kill everyone, basically. The first thing you have to do is get out of Wuhan. And because of the slowness of the Chinese response, because of the cover-your-ass corruption that is endemic in a totalitarian society, 
and frankly every society, we have those problems too, 5 million people were able to get out of Wuhan, and they spread throughout China. And so a week after that happened, when you still had hundreds of flights leaving China, the WHO said there was no need to restrict those flights. And the way I think about it is you learn a lot about the health of a culture by how they respond to an existential threat. So, for example, Japan. Japan didn't even require citizens coming back from Wuhan to get tested. They just let them go back into the civilian population. Israel, on the other hand, stopped allowing flights very quickly, and anyone who returned had to stay in quarantine for two weeks. Russia shut their border. Singapore and Vietnam stopped visas. Italy halted all flights. British Airways stopped all flights. Air France stopped all flights. Lufthansa stopped all flights. SAS stopped all flights. Even Air Canada stopped. But not the American carriers. Not Delta, not United, not American. They all planned to continue to fly until February 6th. So today is February 2nd. If Delta, United, and American had had their way, they would still be flying hundreds of people from China into this country every day until Thursday. But for once, the U.S. government acted pretty well. They said on Friday the 31st that no foreign national would be allowed to enter the country if they had been in China during the previous two weeks, and any American citizen who wanted to come in would have to be in quarantine for two weeks. And that, to me, is eminently sensible and rational and reasonable. When the U.S. government declared this on Friday, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs said, quote, U.S. comments are inconsistent with the facts and inappropriate. The WHO called on countries to avoid adopting travel bans. Yet shortly afterward, the U.S. went in the opposite direction and started a very bad turn. It is so unkind. So just let that sink in for a minute. When they knew this was a virulent disease, when they knew it was already across the entire country, when they had already shut down multiple cities completely, China still wanted the right to fly hundreds of their citizens out of the country every day and into the United States. So here's where we stand. We don't know anything. We still don't know the incubation period. We still don't know how contagious the disease is. We still don't know the severity of the illness or the death rate. So for example, again, as of Saturday, the 1st of February, there were about 12,000 reported cases and 259 dead. At least those are the official statistics. And, you know, it's China again, so take it with a grain of salt. But assume that's correct. That doesn't sound so bad, right? Maybe a 2% mortality rate. But again, as of Saturday, only 240 people had been discharged from hospital. And that means the recovery rate at this point is also 2%. There's a 2% death rate and a 2% recovery rate. In other words, we don't know anything. But I take a step back and I say, we don't know anything, but we can see that the system is fragile. In China, the pollution is so bad, it's basically as if everyone is a smoker. Now think about that 
in terms of catching a virus, in terms of having that virus turn into pneumonia, in terms of pneumonia becoming deadly. China is now a society that is very fragile from a health point of view. And not just from pollution, just from sanitation. I mean, the stories coming out of there about these live animal markets is insane. The sanitation is terrible. And therefore, the spread of these diseases is much more easy. And again, the entire world now sources almost everything it buys from China. And that, incre- and that means if China is fragile, the world is fragile. We have these insanely long, complicated supply chains that reach deep into China. And so I think you have all these identifiable sources of fragility, pollution, sanitation, long supply chains, globalism. Globalism has failed. And this is only the latest example, because globalism creates these these black swan situations where every local system, which, you know, they should be independent and not exposed to, to the mistakes of other local systems, well, now they're all linked. They're all linked through trade and travel. And that means someone half a world away can make a mistake and you pay the price. Someone half a world away has bad sanitation or eats a wild animal that is known to carry disease, and maybe you lose your job because the economy stops for a while. Or maybe you lose your health because someone is allowed to leave Wuhan for Beijing, and then they fly to your city and you get infected. And maybe you pay for this with the lives of your children. And so I say, is it worth it? Is it worth risking your life and the lives of your children in order to get slightly cheaper disposable goods? I don't think that's a good trade, especially when it involves losing your job due to offshoring. (sighs) I think this coronavirus is really exposing the fact that globalism has got to go. Okay, that's all I've got this week. I'll catch you later.